0: At a time when health officials across the country are racing to tamp down COVID flare-ups, here in New York, the hot topic is how to open schools in the fall. We very much want to open up schools in September. We very much want children back in school. But as you might imagine, this issue is complicated. And like everything else, it gets political. The president threatens federal funding for schools that don't hold in-person classes. As the CDC announces, they will issue new guidelines next week. But tonight, the nation's largest... Beyond the health of our communities, there may be no more important issue than how the pandemic is impacting education.
1: Having seen the experience of what happened in the spring, uh, we need to be prepared. That doesn't mean only focusing on the learning loss. It means also looking to what we know
0: works. In this edition of 880 In-Depth, we'll look at one local university's model for opening up the fall semester.
2: Yeah, it will not be normal as uh, we all had hoped. It'll be a new normal.
0: And we'll also dig into the issue of solving an education gap that has only been made worse by the pandemic. Turning a lost year into an opportunity. I'm Tim Scheldt from WCBS News Radio 880, and this is 880 in depth. Who isn't worried about how school will look in the fall? In a few minutes, we'll hear from the head of the Education Trust in New York, an education advocacy group, very much concerned about an education gap in our communities that they say existed well before the pandemic. But first, a conversation with the president of Fairleigh Dickinson University in New Jersey. A few weeks back, we heard from President Christopher Capuano about the challenges of holding classes in the fall. FDU is the largest private university in New Jersey, with two campuses in the northern part of the state. It serves over 11,000 students. After much study and with guidance from the government and health experts, FDU released a plan this week that would allow for some in-person learning this fall. And frankly, the fall begins in a matter of weeks for them. It's an example of how schools are handling, and we wanted to hear more.
2: So everything we're planning for right now is, is contingent on the state getting to stage three of the governor's plan. So that's what most uh, most folks in positions like mine are most concerned about um, is getting to stage three. Because if we don't get to stage three, I don't, I don't think we can, uh, I don't think we can reopen. in in any form, and we would be forced to uh, to continue uh, with remote learning, instructing online. That's not something we want to do. It's not something that our students and families, uh, for the most part, want to do, but our hands are tied. So we're counting on people doing the right thing, uh, practicing uh, social distancing, physical distancing, and wearing masks so that we can get to stage three. As a state, but our planning is pretty much in line with what uh, what I told you uh, several weeks ago. What has changed a little bit and it continues to change is uh, the nature of the testing we will do in fact, the CDC guidelines now for higher ed uh, seem to be suggesting lately that um, we shouldn't require all students to be tested before they return to campus. That sounds somewhat surprising, but I think a lot of it has to do with uh, the fact that uh, you know someone could test negative today but be positive tomorrow. So unless you test them over consecutive days, you you can't be relatively certain that uh, that uh, that they're they're infected or not infected. So the suggestions now seem to be relying more on um, students self-reporting their behavior on a regular basis, not only before they come back to campus, but every day once they're back on campus. And doing testing, but doing testing uh, randomly in order to determine if uh, there's uh, infection on campus. Um, and also doing what people are now calling pooled or batch testing, which uh, allows you to test uh, multiple individuals at once by combining uh, saliva or blood in some cases if, uh, if the technology uh, and the personnel is to do to do blood analysis. And then if you determine that there's infection in a batch or pooled sample, then you of course would do individual testing. And, uh, and if students are believed to, to be infected, if they're symptomatic or uh, you have reason to believe through contact tracing that they might be infected, then certainly we would do individual testing. So I think that's where Tim, where most of the changes are, are occurring now is in uh, the nature of the testing, how the testing will be done, how frequently, Um, but to to do that, and we're paying very close attention to uh, all the guidance that's being provided. Uh, In fact, we've retained, as many schools have uh, just recently, um, a a consulting firm that's uh, assisting us with our return to campus plan, which, as you can imagine, has a significant uh, health and, and safety component to it.
0: And you'll be doing a mix of in-person and remote uh, learning just to, to mix it up?
2: Correct, correct. Um, yeah, it will not be normal as uh, as uh, we all had hoped. It'll be a new normal. So right now, like most schools that are planning to return, we're proposing a hybrid model. The reason being is that we're going to have to practice physical distancing on, on campus uh, Pretty much everywhere, except in in individual dormitory rooms where it 's more difficult to do that, but in classrooms, certainly, so most of us are going to do our best to adhere to a six foot uh, the six foot rule with respect to chairs in a classroom. Certainly everybody will be required to wear masks, probably not just indoors but even outdoors, but in addition six feet six feet of uh, distancing at all times that Requirement uh, or recommendation uh, means that we, we can't achieve full capacity in most classrooms. So we're hoping to get as close to 50% capacity as possible, but that alone will only allow students half of a class, for example, to come on a given day, and the other half will have to study uh, that day. They'll They'll see with technology what's actually happening in the classroom, but they won't be physically in the classroom. They may be in their dormitory room or if they're a commuter student at home. But then in the second meeting uh, in a given week, they, they will then be in class, and the other half that was in class earlier in the week will be, st- will be participating remotely. So this, this is this hy- hybrid or what people are calling high-flex model of learning, but uh, the, the situation requires us to do this. You can't have everyone back in every class unless you can be at 100% capacity, and knowing is no one is seeing that right now.
0: Does it make it more challenging to have a mix of commuter students and those who live on campus? Because, you know, you can practice some sort of herd immunity. I'm not sure you can ever achieve that with folks on campus and protect each other. Uh, but then you've got a whole population of people who are sliding in and out every day.
2: Yes. I mean, this This does make it more difficult in terms of uh, protecting the community. Anytime anyone, and it goes for faculty and staff, as well as students. Anytime anyone leaves campus, uh, it's gonna be very difficult for us to know other than what they're reporting, you know, where, where, they, where they go, uh, where they've been and who they've come in contact with. And, you know, the real difficulty with this particular virus is many, if not most people that are infected are asymptomatic. They, they have no idea they have the virus. So if they're not practicing uh, distancing, physical distancing, You know, more generally, not just on campus, but in their lives more generally, then uh, it it makes our campus community uh, more susceptible as they come back onto campus each day. So, yeah, in an ideal world, it would be nice to be able to keep everyone on campus between the start and the end of the semester and and treat them as one big family unit, one big family, but uh, that's not – that's not reasonable to think that we can do that. So uh, commuter students will add to our challenges, no doubt.
0: You uh, last time we spoke, you talked to me about the challenges of uh, also faculty. You brought that up. Um, many of the faculty in institutions like yours are learned folks, uh, people who've been around, uh, people who are 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 older. People in this case, from a health point of view, may be compromised. Uh, how do you deal mm-hmm. with that? How do you deal with that?
2: So. Another challenge, and uh, yes, we, we do have uh, not only uh, faculty but staff that may have underlying medical conditions that make them not, not more susceptible to becoming infected but more susceptible to becoming seriously ill if, in fact, they become infected. Age, as you know, is a variable, but you know, age alone doesn't necessarily mean that you're at high risk. You're at higher risk. Uh, or greater risk than perhaps someone younger than you are, but uh, not necessarily at high risk. So we've already implemented a, a, uh, a process where faculty and staff who have an underlying medical condition and believe that they're uh, more susceptible, more vulnerable, can ask, uh, can request, not only indicate, you know, what their vulnerability is, but to request special uh, accommodations. And those accommodations uh, may even uh, include are likely to include for, for some uh, faculty, perhaps uh, more than just some, uh, the the uh, ability to, to continue teaching, continue working from home. So it's going to be a fairly wide range of accommodations that uh, go as far as uh, working entirely from home so that we can keep people safe. Our hope is that We'll have a reasonably good balance uh, of faculty who are teaching on campus, as well as some who are teaching uh, remotely, and that uh, this will be uh, satisfactory. Uh, In some cases, we'll have students, as I've already noted, who are studying at home versus on campus, and uh, based on schedule, but even based on choice. Some students, too, may feel uncomfortable coming back to campus for the same reasons. They may have underlying medical conditions. So certainly we're going to be flexible and we're going to allow not only our our faculty and staff um, who require accommodations to to receive them, but our students as well.
0: I'll wrap up by asking you as a career educator, uh, if you have deep concerns about this generation of students on every level of education going through this period of time, what do you think the overall impact may end up being?
2: Well, you know, we we were all eighteen to twenty-four at one time, you know, in our lives. Uh, I think back often about when I was in college, and I know that that they are the the biggest risk risk takers in our society. Um, but I think I think uh, this is different than anything I certainly had to, uh, to go to in my lifetime. And uh, I'm hopeful uh, that we can convince them when they come back to campus that uh, they need to do this uh, for others, not just for themselves. And I think that's that's the biggest, the most important message we, we need to relay to everybody is that when t- somebody's telling you to wear a mask, when somebody's telling you to stay six feet away, They're not just saying it because they don't want you to be hurt for you to become infected. They're saying it because they don't want you to infect someone else. And that someone else could be your mother, your grandmother, your grandfather, or someone else who's not even on our campus. So I'm hoping, I'm praying that that resonates with uh, a majority of our student body and that they will do a good job of of policing themselves. We we are not going to, uh, be able to require people to do everything we want them to do, but we're certainly gonna ask them to take a pledge and to do it on behalf of the community. So I I just have a good feeling, a very uh, special feeling about our students in particular, that uh, when we tell them what we need to tell them and why we're requiring them to do things differently, that uh, it's gonna resonate with them and they're they're gonna understand. You know, I can't tell you, it's another subject matter how much I've admired uh, the many uh, 18 to 24-year-olds and, and other ages across the country that have really uh, uh, exercised their their right uh, to express themselves in terms of speech and protesting in, in recent months, you know, related to the uh, the social injustices that we've all been uh, witnessing before our eyes, and, and I applaud their activism. I think. Uh, they're our future. We we have to bet on on uh, on eighteen to twenty four year olds, especially in, in those that uh, that are in our classrooms and who we are educating. They're the future of this country, and they have to make a lot of things right. So I think this is a wonderful life lesson. Uh, this pandemic, not that any of us wanted it, but it's a wonderful life life lesson for uh, for a lot of people, but especially for uh, students who uh, are are in college
0: we can call them the next greatest generation
2: yep they have an opportunity to do that it's in their it's in their control and all they need to do is as a group do the right things and i think uh, it'll be a generation that people won't forget for a long time and history will treat well
0: fdu will open this semester in just over a month with three weeks of remote sessions before welcoming students back in early September. This struggle over the desire for in-person learning and the pressure to make it safe for students, teachers, and staff is a real tough one for educators. Listen to Ian Rosenblum, Executive Director of the Education Trust, New York.
1: Absolutely, the goal of of getting as many students as possible physically in front of a teacher in a way that is safe Um, is a goal worth pursuing. We are not experts on the health and safety side of the house. And so being able to listen to the state officials who are making those health and safety decisions is really important to figuring out which spaces should be considered. The goal, though, more students with real live access to their teachers is absolutely the right one.
0: The Education Trust in New York is an education advocacy group focused on improving schooling for all ages. We reached out to speak to him to see what concerns he may have about remote learning and how it might impact this generation of students. His concerns were deeper, and we were interested to hear more about it. He spoke to our Peter Haskell.
1: Before the pandemic started, our education system was riven by extraordinary inequities. And everything from the level of instruction that students receive to their access to advanced coursework. Um, and far too often it is students of color and students from low income backgrounds who historically have been underserved by our education system. So that's the starting point. And then you take the pandemic and the school closures that resulted We did polling of parents in New York City and across New York State early in school closures, and then just recently in June. One of the things that we saw is that satisfaction with online learning drops really dramatically. Um, In New York City, for example, it dropped from 64% of parents saying that it's been successful to about 53%. And those declines, are driven by the experience of parents from low-income backgrounds who did not receive the kind of educational support, in particular instructional support, during this period of time. And that's one of the reasons that parents tell us in our polling that they are so concerned about their children falling behind academically
3: what needs to happen between now and september when it seems like it seems unlikely school doors are going to open every day for every student so what needs to happen to keep this from going forward and and, and spiraling downward
1: that, that, that's right and, and and we see that there are dual public health crises that we're facing as we think about reopening on the one hand Um, There's the, of course, health and safety and educational impact of the pandemic. And then right alongside with it is our country's increasing focus on systemic racism. And so as we think about what it means to plan to reopen schools with equity in the fall, it means addressing both of those challenges. Um, And so whether school opens fully in-person or some combination of in-person and distance or if health authorities say at some point in the year it has to be distance learning alone. Um, We think it's really important to focus on the kinds of supports both academic and non-academic that students are receiving from their schools across any of those ways of delivering education. And that really all starts of course with instruction because the relationship between teachers and students and families is the heart of learning regardless of whether it's in person Or distance or some blended um, learning between the two one of the things we saw is that um, students from low-income backgrounds and students of color frequently do not receive the same level of live instruction or feedback on assignments um, or ability to interact with their teachers during school closures and so we need to think for the fall about making sure that all of our uh, educators are supported to be providing that kind of instruction and engagement to all students, um, and to thinking about how we really target our resources to close learning gaps and ensure high expectations and levels of support for all students.
3: What you describe in terms of the low-income students, how much of, this, how much of that is about technology and how much of it is about training?
1: So certainly uh, there's a fair amount of it that's about technology, and um, in some sense that's the, the, the portion of it that's easiest to address. Um, it's important, though, to note that it's not only about whether families have a device. Uh, it goes much deeper than that. So one, it's about do families have enough devices? If a family has more than one child who's in school or a parent who's using that device to work, just having a device, in the household is obviously not sufficient. Second, um, it's about Internet connectivity. One of the things that we saw frequently is that families didn't have access to the high-speed Internet in a reliable way uh, to be able to fully participate in instruction. And third, it's about technical support. Uh, In our polling, we asked parents a set of questions about what would be helpful to them. And one of the things that was really clear, um, and a really large gap, Um, is that about 87% of parents said that providing technical assistance to help get them set up for remote or distance learning would be helpful. Fewer than 40% of parents said that their school was actually providing that. And so having that assistance to be able to use the learning platform um, and to have that assistance in the parent's home language is really a critical gap to think about as we go forward. And then in addition to technology, we again have to come back to relationships. How do we make sure that there's real and meaningful engagement between students and not only their teachers, but also school counselors and the entire school community using whatever platform um, has to be used uh, in the coming school year?
3: You talk about relationships. Should the school district, should New York City trying to engage in private partnerships, be it for space at office buildings that are vacant, that have auditoriums, and for companies that have the kind of uh, technological know-how that they can use to train teachers and the folks on the the district's end? So
1: partnerships are are certainly always important. I think a couple of the considerations that have to also be a player what are the health and safety implications so of course maximizing space is really important making sure that that space can be cleaned and meets all the health requirements um, that we presume the state uh, health officials will put out is of course a paramount concern as well one of the areas where we really see an opportunity for partnerships is with cultural institutions libraries museums after school providers and other community-based organizations that have extraordinary experience working with students and families. Um, if all students aren't able to be in school at the same time, how do we think about this broader asset of really high quality partnership organizations that have rich instructional and educational and support opportunities? Um, to be able to help families, uh, to be able to support students educationally um, and provide enrichment so that students can really experience a full educational program, um, even if the school day does have to look really different this coming year.
3: And when it comes to distancing, if, if a company has a large conference space or conference spaces or an auditorium that would fit students that are distanced, Is that worth pursuing just to try to get more kids physically in front of a teacher?
1: So absolutely, the goal of of getting as many students as possible physically in front of a teacher in a way that is safe um, is a goal worth pursuing. We are not experts on the health and safety side of the house. And so being able to listen to the state officials who are making those health and safety decisions is really important to figuring out which spaces should be considered. The goal, though, more students with real live access to their teachers is absolutely the right one.
3: The districts that did virtual learning well, what were they doing?
1: So one of the key things that they did is they provided a lot of support to their uh, educators, um, and they helped teachers transition to these distance learning platforms. They also made sure that it wasn't just the job of the teacher, that there were school counselors, other school administrators, um, and and other officials who were both providing support um, and also engaging with families because that is a, an incredibly time-consuming and incredibly important job that has to go beyond the individual teacher. And in addition, the schools that, that we saw as doing some really positive practices this spring Um, made as much live instruction um, and teacher-directed instruction as possible available to students and supplemented it, recognizing that not every student has the technology um, or otherwise is able to participate in live instruction, how can they experience an also rich and rigorous curriculum um, through assignments, through high-quality feedback, through um, asynchronous interaction with their educators so that students who can participate in distance learning don't end up missing out.
3: For districts that are planning now, how do we do the full? How do we do a, 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 a mix of in-person and virtual learning? Two things, one, what should those districts be doing to try to figure out how to do it best? And do they have enough time?
1: So the good news is that districts and states have been thinking a lot about this for a while now. Um, So this isn't the the starting gate. So the question of do they have enough time, there is nothing more urgent than making sure that schools can start safely and educationally sound, stronger, by putting equity at the forefront of their work this fall. Um, And it's critical that we use whatever time available to make sure that that is what happens. And that's the critical role of of states and school districts and schools
3: right now. Is, you know, I mean, I think people look at New York City and they say, you know, is is the city doing enough? Is the department doing enough? Do you have a sense of whether they are on track to be ready for September?
1: You know, as the nation's largest school system, um, on the one hand, the challenges that New York City is facing are unlike any other in the country. At the same time, the opportunities that New York City has to show what can be done and what can be done to improve educational opportunity in this incredible uh, time of uncertainty, but also a time when students and families are depending on their schools and institutions more than ever uh, is also unlike anywhere else in the country. And so it's critically important that New York City get it right. I think the proof will really be in the pudding here. Um, Not only how does the, the city say that schools can address instructional time in-person for students, but also how does the city decide to provide support for students when they're not in a school building? How does it address not only the technology needs, um, but also the other instructional and non-academic needs of families? And how does it make sure that, that the curriculum that students are experiencing, regardless of whether it's when they're sitting in a classroom or engaging in blended or distance learning, is a culturally responsive curriculum, a rigorous curriculum, a curriculum that truly prepares students for a range of college and career opportunities and does so with a lot of teacher support. Those tenets have to hold true regardless of the type of um, school or distance environment that the city is planning for. And when we see what the city decides to do on those fronts, we'll know if they're really ready for the fall.
0: Back to the initial premise of our conversation this week. How concerned are you about the potential
3: for another lost year for students?
1: Of course we have to be concerned about that. Having seen the experience of what happened in the spring, uh, we need to be prepared. That doesn't mean only focusing on the learning loss. It means also looking to what we know works in helping students succeed, in helping to close these learning gaps and help students make progress towards meeting state standards. And so certainly there's a lot of concern. Um, We also know what to do to get it right. And so getting those academic plans in place and non-academic supports in place and really putting educational equity at the forefront of that planning. So that we have an educational plan that can go right alongside the health and safety plan uh, is the way to make sure that all students um, are able to succeed in the coming school year whatever the circumstances might be
0: ian rosenblum made reference to the survey his organization has done in new york on education equity they spoke to 800 parents of children in new york state schools just a month ago and among the findings Satisfaction with distance learning dropped from 57% in their survey in May to just 43% last month. More parents are concerned their kids will fall behind because of remote learning. And students from low-income families, not surprising to anyone, are much less likely to have access to technology and reliable internet, which will be key to this idea of education equity. 880 In Depth is a production of WCBS News Radio 880. The executive producers are Peter Haskell and myself. Marta Zelinska handles our digital content. And we encourage you to subscribe to make sure you don't miss a week of 880 In Depth. Just search wherever you get your podcasts.